Most of you know the name R.C. Sproul. <clears throat> R.C. Sproul was one of the most influential Reformed theologians of the second half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century until his death in 2017. Some of you know that back in 1994 and 1995, he was involved in a controversy about whether evangelical Protestants and Roman Catholics could come together on the basis of a shared gospel, whether they could call one another brothers. This was called ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And at one point, six prominent evangelical theologians met together in Florida behind closed doors to discuss this. Three of them were in favor of ECT, and three of them were opposed. The ones opposed were Dr. D. James Kennedy of Florida, Dr. John MacArthur, and Dr. R.C. Sproul. John MacArthur told the story of R.C.'s role in that at R.C.'s memorial service in 2017, and it went like this, according to MacArthur. The force in the room that day was R.C. Sproul. At one point, he got up on the table and pointed his finger at one of the opposition, and he said, I don't think you get it. It's about the gospel. Now, mind you, R.C. Sproul has written on his tombstone, because it was true, he was a kind man, redeemed by a kinder Savior. But when it came to the gospel, he was uncompromising, vehement, and even ferocious in defending the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The key word being alone. Totally uncompromising and a hero of the faith. But when I picked up his commentary this week on Matthew, and I read his exposition of the Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24, which we are studying in Mark 13, and you can be turning there in your Bibles to Mark 13. So I wanted to hear what R.C. Sproul, this great defender of the faith, said when it came to the Olivet Discourse. And I read these words. I have wrestled with this passage for many years, and some of the views I have taken have had to give way to correction and change along the way. So I am not yet at the place where I am certain that I can dogmatically declare the proper interpretation of this portion of sacred scripture. Please struggle along with me as we seek to discern the mind of our God on these matters. What a contrast. I think we can learn something from our late brother who's with the Lord, R.C. Sproul, and it is this. We do not need to have the same degree of certainty about everything in the Bible. Now, about the saving truths of the gospel, you better be rock-solid certain about those things. And it's okay to be really sure about other things. I've been a Christian 52 and a half years, and I'm convinced that I will die believing in the doctrines of sovereign grace. I'm not going to change my mind. I believe I will die believing that baptism is for believers alone. I think I will die as a Reformed and Baptistic Christian. But there are other matters, brothers and sisters, where it's okay to be more tentative and to say, I think this, but I'm not absolutely sure. In fact, I believe that humility dictates that with some matters. But having said that, 
I do believe that I have a clearer understanding of this Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 than I've ever had before. And I do want to share the insights that I've gleaned from others with you. So if your Bibles are open to Matthew, or rather Mark, chapter 13, remember that um, as Jesus was leaving the temple for the last time on Tuesday, he would die on Friday, his disciples were enamored of the magnificence of the temple buildings. Jesus responds to them with this shocking word in verse 2. Jesus said to, to him, one disciple in Mark, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And then as they make their way from the temple to the Mount of Olives, the disciples are provoked to ask this question. Tell us, when will these things be? In verse 4. And what will be the sign when all these things are to be fulfilled? But to get a clearer understanding of the way that Jesus answers the question, we need to look at Matthew's version and how the question was framed there. In Matthew 24, 3, also introducing the Olivet Discourse, we read this. Tell us, Jesus, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It appears to be two questions, but in their minds, as you know, it was really only one. They thought if this temple was ever to be destroyed, it must be at the time of your second coming and at the end of the age. So, but they were wrong. They were wrong. The temple would be destroyed, as Jesus predicted, and Jesus will come again at the end of the age. But these two events are separated already now by 1,952 years. So Jesus, because these were two separate events, answers their question in two parts. And in my current understanding, he answers the question about when the destruction of the temple will happen in verses 5 all the way to verse 31 in Mark 13. And one compelling reason for this is what it says in verse 30 of Mark 13. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Everything that goes before, everything he has said before in that discourse applies to this generation. And the reason for taking it as the, the generation of people then living, one of the reasons is in the parallel in Matthew, just prior to giving the Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24, Jesus says these words at the end of Matthew 23. After uh, scathingly rebuking the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites, he says this, Matthew 23, 35 and 36, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now notice, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He's clearly talking about the people living at that time. And so when he says in Mark 13.30, all these things will, will come upon this generation, will take place in this generation, I do believe he's talking about those living. And a Jewish generation was 40 years. Jesus is speaking these words in 30 A.D., Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 AD, exactly 40 years. And so, brothers and sisters, I believe 
that only in verse 32 does Jesus shift gears and begin answering the question about his second coming and the end of the age. There we read in Mark 13, 32, but of that day or hour. So this is my breakdown of this chapter. Mark 13, 5 to 13 are signs and events leading up to the destruction of 70 AD. That's what we will consider this morning. From Mark 13, 14 to 31, he's going to give the one sign that announces that the destruction is imminent, and that will be the abomination of desolation. We'll begin seeing that next week. And then I believe in verse 32, he begins to talk about his second coming. So let's look at the passage. We're going to look at verses 5 to 13. The first thing I want to call your attention to is what he calls preparatory birth pangs in verse 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, you women, you not only know what birth pangs are, if you're mothers, you have felt them. Maybe even with the mention of that, you can have a flashback to those birth pangs. It is the contraction of the uterus that puts pressure on the baby to begin to make its way down the birth canal. And Jesus is saying, when you see these signs, it doesn't mean that the destruction is going to happen just then, but it's on its way. These are birth pangs. These things are birth pangs pointing forward to culminating in the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And now let's spend the rest of our time looking at the specific signs that Jesus gives. And I'm saying these are signs of the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. The first is this in verse 6. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. The first birth pang that you know destruction is coming is there will be false Christs, false messiahs coming in Jesus' name. Now, we know from our study of Mark and any of the Gospels that, G that the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a political messiah and deliverer, weren't they? At one point in John 6, 15, they actually tried to take him by force to make him a king, but he withdrew by himself alone to the mountain. When he came in the triumphal entry, he met with cries of, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And the Jews were expecting him to bring in a kingdom like David's, a political kingdom, an earthly kingdom. Pilate certainly caught the vibe when Jesus stood before him and he said, are you the king of the Jews? You know, it had been bandied about that he was a king, a rival to Caesar. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. And it was because Jesus failed to fill the bill as that kind of Messiah that they ultimately crucified him and cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And they clamored to have an insurrectionist Barabbas released in his place. And so were there false Christs between 30 and 70 AD? Clearly there were. Even the New Testament tells us that in Acts chapter 5, we read of, of a couple of those false messiahs that Jesus said would arise after him. In Acts 5, 36 and 37, we read, for some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. In chapter 8 of the, of, of the book of Acts, you remember Simon the magician in Samaria in chapter 8, 9, and 10. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying this man is what is called the great power of God. In Acts 13, in our New Testament, we see another such man, Jesus saying there will be false Christs who will arise. In Acts 13, 6, we read, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2.18 that many antichrists have already gone out into the world. And so what Jesus says is before that destruction in 70 AD, there are going to be a lot of people coming along claiming to be Christ. But not only does the New Testament tell us that, but the Jewish historian Josephus, and here I have this heavy volume, The Works of Josephus, and he is full of references to these false Christs. And I'm only going to read from one page here, where he mentions three of them. I've looked up all the other references, and for the first time in years, I think I have to use my reading glasses because the print is so small. But he says, there was also Judas, the son of that Ezekias, who had been head of the robbers, which Ezekias was a very strong man and had with great difficulty been caught by Herod. This Judas, having gotten together a multitude of men of a profligate character about Seaphorus in Galilee and made an assault upon the palace there and seized upon all the weapons that were laid up in it. Then he mentions another. There was also Simon, who had been a slave of Herod the king, but in other respects a comely person of a tall and robust body. He was one that was much superior to others of his order. This man was elevated at the disorderly state of things and was so bold as to put a diadem on his head while a certain number of the people stood by him and by them he was declared to be a king. And then he mentions a certain Athronges, a person neither eminent by the dignity of progenitors nor for any great wealth he possessed of, but one that had in all respects been a shepherd only and was not only by known and was not known by anybody. And yet, because he was a tall man and excelled others in the strength of his hands, he was bold as to set up for a king. And Josephus goes on to mention other men who were uh, making claims to be king, claims to be Messiah. He mentions Judas of Galilee and Thutis, which are mentioned in Acts 5. He mentions a certain Egyptian false prophet, mentions one called the imposter, mentions a Menahem, mentioned the Samaritan. Listen to this. The well-respected church historian, Philip Schaff, wrote about Israel in those days that it, Israel, rose to the most insolent political and religious fanaticism and was continually inflamed by false prophets and messiahs, one of whom, for example, according to Josephus, drew after him 30,000 men. Some think that Josephus was exaggerating there. Abba Hillel Silver a man who promoted the founding of the Jewish state in 1948 said this, the first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the temple, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This is to be attributed, as we shall see, not to an intensification of Roman persecution, but to the prevalent belief induced by the popular chronology of that day that the age was on the threshold of the millennium. So Jesus said, 
they're going to be false Christs. The Bible and secular history indicate that there was an upsurge in these false messiahs before 70 AD. Jesus goes on to talk of wars and rumors of wars in our text. When you hear of wars, verse 7, and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So Jesus says, and I'm saying this is all before 70 AD, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation. What is noteworthy is that the first part of the first century was a time of unprecedented peace. Beginning at 17 BC with the reign of the Emperor Augustus, it was known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And there was unprecedented peace in the land. And that peace was enforced by the Roman Imperial Army, called by one historian one of the greatest and most formidable armies that has ever existed. The Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder spoke of, quote, the immeasurable majesty of the Roman peace. Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus wrote, Caesar has obtained for us a profound peace. There are neither wars nor battles. And the historian Eusebius, writing a couple centuries later, says of that time, quote, profound peace reigned in all the world. Now, Jesus said there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. That was the Pax Romana. That was the peace of Rome enforced by the powerful Roman army. But here's the striking thing. That peace ended with Nero. Nero lived from 37 to 68. He's only 31 when he died. He reigned from 54 AD to 68. And it was under Nero that the Romans began the siege on Jerusalem, which would culminate in its destruction. But with Nero's death in 68 AD, which was by suicide, the Roman civil wars erupted and the Roman Empire almost collapsed. During that period, several nations revolted and attempted to leave the empire. Tacitus, the Roman historian in his annals, speaks of disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Parthians, the war in Britain, the war in Armenia. The peace of Rome was disrupted by wars and rumors of wars. In fact, after Nero's death by suicide in 68, four emperors reigned within one year. The first three were brutally murdered. They were Galba, Otho, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. Jesus said there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. But he said that's not the end. These are just birth pangs. What does he go on to say? Famines and earthquakes. The second half of verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Were there famines? Well, we're told in the Bible, in Acts 11, that there was a great famine prophesied by Agabus. In Acts 11 and verse 28, we read, one of them, one of the prophets named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Josephus, not a Christian, but a Jewish historian in his Antiquities of the Jews, confirms the reality of this famine. Reading from page 416 in my volume, and again, needing my reading glasses because the print is so small. 
There's a lot compacted in this book. He says, now the coming of a certain Helena from Alexandria was a very great advantage to the people of Jerusalem. For whereas a famine did oppress them at that time, and many people died for want of what was necessary to procure food with all. And then he goes on. During the siege, Josephus reports. Well, let me back up. The historians Tacitus and Suetonius speak of famines being prevalent during this time. Tacitus, the Roman historian, writing in about 51 AD, says this year witnessed many Repeated earthquakes, a shortage of corn resulting in famine. It was established that there was no more than 15 days supply of food in the city, that is the city of Rome. There were earthquakes reported in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, the island where David was, off of Greece, the island of Chios, Samos, Apamea, Campania, and Rome. In 60 AD, Laodicea, Herapolis, Colossae were devastated by a quake. In A.D. 58, Seneca, the Roman, wrote, How often have the cities of Asia and Achaia fallen with one fatal shock? How many cities have been swallowed up in Syria? How many in Macedonia? How often has Paphos become a ruin? News has often been brought to us of the demolition of whole cities at once. And again, Josephus, in his Jewish war, records this. Page 533 in my volume. For there broke out a prodigious storm in the night with the utmost violence and very strong winds with the largest showers of rain and continual lightnings, terrible thunderings and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth that was in an earthquake. These things were a manifest indication that some destruction was coming upon men when the systems of the world, the system of the world was put into this disorder, and anyone would guess that these wonders foreshowed some grand calamities that were coming. This is not a Christian, brothers and sisters. This is a Jewish historian who's not trying to corroborate the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say? They're going to be false Christs. They're going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes and famines. History tells us that these things happen just as Jesus said. Further, he says, there will be persecution and martyrdom. In our text, verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you up to courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Skipping over verse 10, temporarily, he goes on in verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This surely happened in the first century. In fact, if you turn back to Matthew 10 or just listen, Jesus in another context says almost the same things, talking to his contemporaries. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. 
But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end will be saved. Almost the exact words as in the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus is clearly talking to the people living at that time. Now, in a real sense, as I will apply later, this persecution can be true of any age in Christian history. But what is interesting is Jesus talks about them being flogged in the synagogues. Sam Storms writes this in his book, Kingdom Come. The reference to courts, councils, synagogues indicates that Jesus has in mind a first century fulfillment. After 70, when the Jewish religious and political system ceased to exist, there were no councils or synagogues. So you see, he's talking about his contemporaries. These things are going to happen between 30 and 70 AD. We can look at the New Testament. I won't take the time, but you can look at Peter and John being dragged before the authorities, the Sanhedrin, to give a defense. We read um, about Paul standing before Felix in Acts 24, before Agrippa II and Festus in Acts 25. Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us, that during Nero's reign, Christians were universally hated for their crimes. And you know what the chief crime was? They would not call Caesar Lord. They would not say Caesar is Corios because Jesus was Corios, and they were hated for that. Matthew's version also talks about apostasy and betrayal. He puts in the mouth of Jesus, not only will there be persecution and martyrdom, But in Matthew 24, he indicates there will be apostasy and betrayal. Just to quote for a moment from Matthew 24, 9 and 10. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Do we see that in the New Testament? Well, yes, we do. We see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Timothy 1.15, he says, all who were in Asia turned away from me. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, as he's there waiting to die in that Roman um, prison of sorts, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. John says, they went out from us because they were not all of us. Tacitus The Roman historian also infers this apostasy during Nero's persecution when he says, first, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. In other words, Christians, professing Christians, would turn in other Christians. But amidst this persecution, even unto death in some cases, that Jesus prophesies, he says to them that... um, Don't worry about what you'll say, because it will be given to you by God. And despite the persecution, he says, those who endure to the end will be saved. That's the doctrine of perseverance, which is, by the way, probably a better way to say it than eternal security. But when Jesus is speaking to the churches in Revelation, he says, to him who overcomes, 
I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He will not be hurt by the second death. I will give authority over the nations. I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And what is that doctrine? When he says he who endures to the end will be saved. It is the doctrine that you must hold on to Jesus by faith until the end, either the end of the persecution or the end of your life. You must. Ah, but it also promises that you will. Because Paul says, neither death nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might be evident that they were all not of us. If you're of him, if you're in Christ, you will persevere. You must, but you will. I'll say more about that a little later. But finally, what am I doing? I'm saying this is all happening between 30 and 70 AD. But then we come to Jesus' prophecy of widespread gospel preaching. Look at verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now you say, okay, pastor, I've been tracking with you so far, but I'm not sure I get that. You're saying all this needs to be stuffed into the first century, but this says the gospel is going to be preached to all the nations. That's got to be talking about the Great Commission and the end of the world, right? Not so fast. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture, which is a basic rule of Bible interpretation. And let me do that with you. But let me first make the challenge more difficult. In Matthew, it says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. If the end is referring to the end of the temple in Jerusalem, the gospel needs to be preached to the whole world and to all the nations. You say, that hasn't happened in the first century, right? Well, hold on. Let's compare Scripture with Scripture. The word world is the Greek word oikumene. It's the same word used in Luke 2, 2, 1, when it says, now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the oikumene, of the inhabited world. Now, he wasn't polling the American Indians. He wasn't polling the people in Australia, but it says the whole world. In Acts 11.28, Agabus, the prophet, predicts that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. It's the same phrase as in our text. Holen, holen, oikumenen, the whole world. But the famine was not utterly worldwide. It was there in the Roman Empire. And in Acts 24, 5, where we have found this man, Paul, a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Again, it's the word uku oikumenein. The whole world? Paul never made it to North America. He didn't go to Australia. You see, the word whole world, oikumenein, often means the Roman Empire. It's a restricted word. It's not referring to the Western Hemisphere. And then the word nations. Again, the gospel must be preached to all the nations. Well, that sounds like end times language, but hold on. The word is ethnos, from which we get ethnicity. 
It means a multitude of individuals who share a kinship, a culture, and traditions. Often it refers to the Gentiles. In Acts 2.5, we read, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men, from every nation under heaven. They weren't from North America. They weren't from Australia. In Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And there it's the word cosmos, which is a broader word than oikumenos. The whole world. Colossians 1.6, The hope which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And in Colossians 1.23, speaks of the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And in Romans 16.26, speaking of my, Paul's gospel, that has been made known to all the nations. Do you see, brothers and sisters, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, when it says the gospel must be preached to all the nations, it doesn't mean all the nations of the world. It, it refers to the inhabited, it refers to the the then known world, it refers to the Roman Empire. And this makes sense because when you realize that when Jesus was on the earth doing his earthly ministry, he restricted his disciples to going to the Jews. In Matthew 10, 5, he says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what he appears to be saying here in his Olivet Discourse is that when the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is destroyed and Judaism is ended, then the gospel will continue to go out to the Gentiles in the world, to the whole world, to all the nations. And in fact, by the language in Paul's day, that had already been done. So brothers and sisters, it seems clear to me that all of this can be stuffed into the first century. All of this language, even the gospel of all the nations, can fit between 30 and 70 AD. Why do I say that? Well, because of verse 30, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Everything he has said before must take place in this generation. And there's reason to believe the generation refers to that 40-year period. And comparing Scripture with Scripture, we see that all this can fit into the first century, plus the personal references in the passage point us in the direction of the first century. For they will deliver you. You will be flogged. You will stand before governors and kings. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. And we have the reliable testimony of secular history. Roman historians and Jewish historians not trying to corroborate the words of Jesus that confirmed that the things Jesus said were going to happen in the near future indeed did happen. So that's my exposition for this morning. I have to wait on more, but I do want to make some applications quickly. Even though these words, I believe, can fit into the first century and apply predominantly to that generation, there are truths here that apply to Christians throughout the age. And let me give you some of them. First, we too must not be misled by false teaching, teachers, and deliverers. Don't be misled by those coming in the name of Christ, saying, I am Christ. And friends, haven't there been false religions, false deliverers throughout the age, and do they not exist today? 
There's a proliferation of false religions in the world, major ones being Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. There are perversions of Christianity, cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Roman Catholicism, Amishism, all of which do not have the biblical Christ because either they pervert the doctrine of his person and say he's not God, or they pervert the doctrine of his work and say what he did on the cross was not sufficient, but I need to add to it. And so we have false Christs today. Not only that, but we need to not be misled by any thought form, worldview, or ideology that would pull us away from our moorings in biblical Christianity. What are some of them? Secular psychology, for decades now, has threatened the truth of God's word by saying the word of God is not sufficient. It can't deal with the deep problems of life. You need to go to the psychological experts to get the wisdom and help that you need. In our day, as we've studied, the religion of social justice is impinging greatly upon the gospel. And we saw in our Sunday school classes, it is a religion. It is a religion based in God-hating Marxism that divides the world into oppressors and oppressed. And we're seeing it. What does it propagate? Hate and enmity and division and a victim mindset that shields people from the gospel. Because you know what? Jesus didn't come ultimately to save victims. He came to save sinners. And as long as you see yourself as a victim of an oppressor, you won't need a savior. It's an alternative competing religion. Human government is becoming God in our day. As belief in our true God wanes, people are looking more and more to government. And we've seen it through COVID that government leaders are more than willing to use to take on power, more and more power. They haven't cared for our well-being. It's been a great power grab at many levels in our government, hasn't it? Over these past two years, we've seen it more clearly. Government is becoming God. Statism. It's a religion. And then there's the religion of personal autonomy. The self is becoming God. People believe they can define what gender they are. They can define what marriage is. They can define what life, when life begins. And there's that God of self and that religion of personal autonomy, which is contra Christ. So false religions, ideologies, messiahs, saviors, deliverers have never been wanting in the world and we, too, need to be alert so as we're not misled by them. Secondly, we, too, must not be frightened by the commotions, both in the natural world and the world of men. Famines, earthquakes, wars, and rumors of wars. One Christian pastor I was hearing in a podcast who lived through the recent Cat 4 Hurricane Ian, godly man, holed up in his home with his children, his young children, for 10 hours while there were 140-mile-an-hour sustained winds. And it said it greatly expanded our faith. And he said, we read over and over again Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High, and they took refuge in their sovereign God. When it comes to wars and rumors of wars, our God says the nations are a drop in the bucket to him. 
This world will not end one nanosecond sooner than God ordains for it to end. And we need not fear of the calamities in nature, in the natural realm, or in the realm of men. Then, what did Jesus say? There are going to be persecutions. We, too, must expect persecution, betrayals for Jesus' sake. This is not, it was especially intense in the first century, but aren't we promised that there will be persecution throughout the age? Jesus said, I took, if you are of the world, the world will love its own, but I took you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul said, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming upon you as though some strange thing were happening upon, coming upon you. We can expect that there will be persecutions, and it is heating up in our country. It's grievous. We must be prepared, but don't be shocked. Jesus said, we've been shielded for years from that persecution that others are experiencing throughout the world, throughout history. It may be coming our way. It is coming our way. Be prepared. And then we still have a worldwide commission to carry out. The gospel was, in some sense, preached to all the nations in Paul's day. He said so. But we have the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And every church ought to have some part in it. And we can be grateful that as a little church, we've got some part in the worldwide work of evangelization. For a while in China, we're supporting a brother who's taking the gospel to his fellow former Muslims. We've got a sister in Chad bringing the gospel to Muslims in Africa. And we've got a brother taking the gospel in Indonesia to a, a little primitive tribe in Papua New Guinea. And we need to have our eyes open. We want to do our little part to support the worldwide work of evangelization because the Great Commission still hangs over us. And it's to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of the nations. And then, finally, we too need to endure to the end. But we will. He who endures that persecution, that intense, horrible persecution in the first century, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. We still need to endure, but we will. Do you live with that tension? There are tensions in the Bible. And this is one tension you need to live with. On the one hand, you need to live with the reality that I must persevere. I must hang on to Jesus. And in that sense, we say with Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I need to stay to the path. I need to hold on to Jesus. I need to keep myself in the love of God. You need to say that to yourself, but you also need to quote the promises to yourself, such as what Jude ends with, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And Peter's promise in 1 Peter 1.5, who are kept by the power of God through faith. You must persevere. But I've got good news for you, believer. You will. Because the power of God will sustain the faith that you need. So we need to endure to the end. But we will. But finally, I say, if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning... What do you learn about Jesus from this passage? He predicted some things, famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and persecution. Friends, those things, he predicted those with pinpoint accuracy. Those things happened exactly as Jesus said they would. What kind of a man is he? Well, let me tell you, he's not a mere man. 
He's the God-man. And if he spoke the truth about those things, maybe you ought to pay attention to some of the other things he's saying. He tells you something about yourself through himself and through his messengers. And that is that you are a sinner. And you fall short of the glory of God and you're under the wrath of God. No one taught more about eternal hell than Jesus Christ. He says you are a lost, condemned sinner apart from God. But he also gave some wonderful promises. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. You'll find rest unto your soul. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. If Jesus spoke the truth about these prophecies, maybe he's speaking the truth about you and your need for a savior. Pay attention to him. Believe his promises. Come to him. And he can instantaneously forgive you of all of your sins, even your future ones. Send his Holy Spirit to live within you, make you a child of God, and destine you for eternal life. Please put your faith in this Jesus who so accurately predicted these things. Let's pray and sing. Oh, Jesus, we believe you in everything you said. And thank you that your word is true. Thank you that the gospel is true. For those here who have not yet believed it, would you grant them repentance and faith to trust in you? We ask in your name.